So this morning, uh, we are at a transition point in the book of Romans. So if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, we've been going through the book of Romans. And Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is a transition point in the book of Romans. It's sort of up till this point and then after. It's kind of the big divide in the book of Romans. And so Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And do not conform to the pattern of the world, but instead, with the renewing of your mind, be transformed, and then you will be able to approve what God's will is, His good, perfect, and pleasing will. That statement marks the transition from what came before to what comes after. This morning's message is for a specific group of people. And you can decide if you're in this group of people or if you're not in this group of people, whether you're here or whether you're watching online. You can decide if you're in this group of people. But the message this morning is for those people who have said, I want to follow God's will. That is essential and important and the priority of my life. I want to follow God's will. If you're here this morning and you're just wanting to check a box that I came to church, if you're here this morning and there's someplace else that you'd prefer to be, if you're here this morning just out of obligation because you feel like you should or somebody talks you into going, this message is not going to be relevant for you. But if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're saying, I want to know God's will, then this message is absolutely for you. And it's interesting, that question, what is God's will for my life? It's a question that we as Christians ask, uh, but it's also, I think, a question that sometimes people outside the faith or people who are outside the church ask as well. One of the things uh, that I do, and some of you all know this, is that I coach tennis at the University of Charleston. And so about three weeks ago, uh, a group of uh, five of us went to Rome, Georgia, because three kids had qualified for the national tournament. And so we took them down there, and instead of getting hotel rooms, I decided to rent an Airbnb for us, and it was kind of this ranch house out in the country. Uh, and so every night I made dinner for this group of guys, and then I decided to kind of make it a family time. And so each night after dinner, or during dinner, we would sit around the table, and I would ask a question of the day, right? So one of the questions was, what did you learn from your father? How do you want to be like your dad? How do you not want to be like your dad? Which is kind of a neat question for, um, you know, 20-something age guys to answer. Uh, but another night, I asked this question. I said, if you could ask God any question that you wanted, what question would you ask? Now, keep in mind, none of these guys are church guys. They're all, you know, different places spiritually. And a lot of them would even say, hey, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe I'm an atheist. But but one of the guys, uh, as we were saying, what would you ask? He said, I would like to know from God, what is the will for my life? And it struck me in that question. It's a question that maybe you're here this morning and you're not even a believer. You're just trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian. But it's a question that a lot of people ask is what is God's will for my life? And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And not in a specific way, not like, should I buy a car? Should I move here? Should I enroll in grad school? Should I stop dating this person? Should I have kids? Not in a specific way, but in a general way. Now, 
those questions may be asked in the midst of it, but we're going to talk about what is God's will for our lives. And so in the book of Romans, begins this way, Romans 12.1. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Now, the word therefore, we've mentioned this earlier in this uh, study of the book of Romans. When you see the word, you read the word therefore, you're supposed to ask the question, what is it? Therefore. There we go. Good job. Thank you. So we say, what is it therefore? And so it says, in view of God's mercy. And so chapters 1 through 11, looking backwards, is a description of God's mercy. It's all that God has done for us and the blessings that he gives to us. And, and the biggest kind of view of God's mercy, and this was kind of in chapters 3, 4, 5, is this idea that we are deserving of God's wrath. That every one of us, because of our sin, because of our disobedience, is deserving of God's wrath. But God, in his mercy, sent Jesus Christ to this earth to die on the cross for our sins in our place. And then if we place our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, then we have eternal life. And so when Paul writes, in view of God's mercy, he's saying in view of all that God has given us, and then for the next number of chapters, from chapter 12 through the end of the book, he's going to talk about what do we do in response to this amazing mercy that God has showed us. Therefore, in view of God's mercy... I urge you, brothers, I urge you, brothers and sisters. And so today we're going to talk about what is God's will for our lives. Next week we're going to talk about how do we love our friends and how do we love our enemies. The week after that we're going to talk about authority and how do we live in a relationship to the various authorities that are over us. And then the final week we're going to talk about what does it mean to be unified as the body of Christ. And so that's where we're going over the next couple of weeks. But this morning, I want us to focus on the first eight verses of chapter 12. So let me read to you verses 1 and 2 again. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing, and perfect will. So in these first two verses, Paul gives three phrases that have a fairly similar meaning to them. He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He says, have a spiritual act of worship. And then he says, test and approve, or in other words, live out God's will. So those three are fairly similar to one another. Now he says, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And he says, is your spiritual act of worship. Now, when we think about worship, generally we think about worship as singing. Like that was the first 30 minutes of the church service today. It was worship. You know, we sing and, you know, somebody raises their hand or they raise two hands. And if you're really intense, you're like, you're ready, you know, that, that's intense worship. That's what we think about when we think about worship. But worship has a much grander or much larger meaning, meaning than that. Now, part of worship, or a way to worship God, is to sing. But worship is any time that we live our lives in such a way that we are pleasing God when we live our lives. So you can worship in the way that you work, 
in your marriage, in the way that you drive. You can worship in the way you handle your finances. You can worship in the way that you talk to people. You can worship God in, in any different way. We just happen to think about worshiping God in song is kind of the one of the ways, but it's really much broader than that. So he says, we're to have a true act of worship. Now, he also uses a phrase here, and he says that we are to be living sacrifices. Now, Paul here is referring back to the Old Testament, to the sacrifices that, were, uh, that God said that were to be offered in the Old Testament. And there were a couple of different types of sacrifices. So one type of sacrifice was a blood sacrifice, and that was typically for the forgiveness of sin. But here he's talking about a different kind of sacrifice. He's talking about what would be called a burnt offering. And so God commanded his people to give burnt offerings as a way of worship, as a way of kind of embracing who God was. It wasn't to make up for their sin. It was a burnt offering in, in remembering who God was. And when they were ordered or when they were commanded to bring a burnt offering, one of the things that was essential is that they said that you're to bring an animal without blemish. In other words, they would offer a lamb or they would offer a sheep or they'd offer a goat, or a bull, or a dove, or a pigeon, or, or whatever it might be. They were to offer this, but they were to bring the finest from their flock. So they weren't supposed to bring the lamb that had the kind of the broken leg, and the messed up hearing, and the bad wool, and all that. They were supposed, don't bring that one. Bring the best one for this burnt offering. And it was this idea that God was showing people of bring your best to God. And so Paul here is calling on that imagery. He says, you are to be living sacrifices. Bring the best of who you are and give it over to God. Don't give God your leftovers. Give God your best. I'm going to give you four I will statements that all have to do with living out God's will in our lives. Here's the first one. To live God's will for my life, I will offer all of myself to God daily. I will offer all of myself. That is a living sacrifice. Now, it's interesting as you look at these verses, he says, and I'm back in verse one, and by the way, I put this on your outline because I'm going to talk about one and two a lot if you want to circle things or underline things or make notes on it, but he says to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. There's a lot of words that Paul could have used in that verse. He could have said, offer your hearts, offer your minds, offer your soul, offer your heart, offer your, I mean, there's a lot of different things that he could have said in there, but he didn't. He said, offer your bodies, because he wanted us to understand that doing God's will for our lives is about what we do. It's not about right thinking or right theology or right heart or all that kind of, I mean, yes, that stuff is important, but what he's pointing to is offer your bodies. It's what you do. That is how you live your life for me. It's what you do. It's how you say things. It's what you say. It's that type of thing. And then I added this little word at the end. It makes the phrase a little bit awkward. It says, I will offer myself to God daily. And the reason I added that word daily is because something that I heard, and I wish this was original with me, but someone was talking about this passage, and I really don't remember who it was or when it was, but it stuck with me. But it said, the, the person said, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it wants to crawl off the altar. 
right? Like a living sacrifice. He just wants to crawl off the altar and get away. And isn't that true of us? Like we are living sacrifices, but we just kind of want to get away sometimes. Like I'm tired of sacrifice in my life. I'm tired of the difficulty. I'm tired of, and we want to crawl away. And so I added that idea of daily because it is a daily commitment that every day we come to him and we say, I offer my life to you. All that I have is yours. Beginning of verse 2, Paul writes, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, in this verse, the first part of verse 2, there's two different sides. There is don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but then the other part is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if you look at the world around you, if you just pause and we look at the world around us, we can see that there is a pattern to the world around us that kind of goes with the culture. You know, and, and every culture is a little bit different. But if you were to look at the pattern of the world around us here in our community, what would you say is the pattern of the world? You know, I think you'd look and say, well, the goal is to live in the nicest home that you can live in, to drive a really nice car, to live at the highest possible, to reach the highest possible level for your career, to have enough money in your bank account that you can never have to worry about money, especially when you retire. There's also about the way that we look, that our body has to look a certain way, that the clothes that we wear are supposed to look a certain style and have a certain pizzazz to them. I think the world around us says, be comfortable. That's the power of the world. Be comfortable in all that you do. You know, for those of us who are parents, there's a pattern of the world that our kids are supposed to follow as well. You know, our kids are supposed to be well-rounded. Our kids are supposed to be good at sports. They're supposed to really excel at something. And if they don't excel at sports, then make sure it's art or dance or music or math or something. Make sure that they excel at something. And we want our kids to kind of look good and dress nice and have the latest things, and we want them to feel good about themselves in that way. That's the pattern of the world for our kids. But that's not the pattern that God wants for our kids. Do you know what God wants for our kids? Is that they would love God more than anything else in this entire world. And that they would love people. And that's the same thing that God wants for us. God doesn't care about the car that you drive or the house that you live in or any of that stuff. What God wants for you, the pattern that God wants for you to renew your mind towards is that you would love him more than anything else. That you have a growing love for God and a growing love for people. We put it this way. To live God's will for my life, I will live differently from the world. I'll give you a real small example of this. Um, Stacy and I lived in Cleveland when we were first married, and we lived there for about uh, four or five years. And they, we went to this little church, uh, and there's a guy in this church whose name was Fritz Awig. And, uh, and I remember this guy, and he was like a real sharp guy, had a really nice job, nice family, lived in a you know, kind of moderate to nice house. Um, but he drove a car that was just a total beater. 
like just not like a beater for like a 40-year-old successful guy, but like this car was like a beater for like an 18-year-old kid, right? Like it was just a beater of a car. I'm like, and I would look at this guy and just kind of his success and the positions he had in life and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, why does he drive this beat down, run down car? Certainly he could afford something nicer than this. And then I realized, kind of a light bulb came on. I'm like, you know what? He drives a beater, run-down car on purpose because he's made an intentional decision that I don't have to have the nicest car. And I think he probably made that decision intentionally. He could probably afford it, you know, pretty much any car that he wanted, but he didn't. He said, I'm not going to live like the world does in this particular area. And I share that with you not to say sell your car and buy a beater car. I mean, you're welcome to do that. That's what God is telling you. Um, And if it's a four-door pickup truck, then God's telling you to give it to me. Um, but, but the thing is, like, look at your life and ask the question, what does my life look like? Does it look just like the world around me? Or are there differences between how I live my life, how you live your life, and the people around you? Because it says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. It doesn't say, therefore, in view of God's mercy, live like everybody on your block. Live like everybody else at your work. Live like everybody else at your school. It says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice that we give up of ourselves for God's glory. Then in verse 3, it says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. I love that phrase. Think of yourself with sober judgment. Like, take a realistic look at your own life and say, what is my life about? You know, we can do this in terms of renewing our minds. And Is my mind being renewed on God? Do I live like the rest of the world? But have an accurate view have an accurate picture of who you are and where you are and God's will for your life. Now, in this, in this um, statement in verse uh, 4, he's really getting at an idea of humility. And so the third part of living God's will is, I will be humble. I will be humble. And that's humility in two directions. One direction is towards God. Like, I will be humble towards God. I will submit my will to what God wants. That's, the hum- that's one humility. But there's also kind of a horizontal humility as well, that I will humble myself before other people. I will humble myself in relationship to the people around me. I love this quote. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's what humility is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And the greatest example that I can see of that is Jesus. And there was a scene in Jesus' life shortly before he died, and it was the Passover. And so all of the disciples are gathered in the upper room, and they've got all the elements for the Passover. They've, they've got the wine and the herbs and the lamb. And they're all gathered and they begin the Passover meal. But there's one thing that's missing. There's nobody to wash their feet. 
And this sort of dinner, there would have always been somebody who was to wash the feet, which is a nasty, dirty job because they walked around in sandals with dirt and your feet would be gross. And you, the way they would eat is you could sort of recline on one side and your feet would stick out this way next to somebody else's face. And so there was always like a, a servant there or a hired person. But in this case, maybe they forgot. Maybe the person didn't show up. I don't know. But there was no one to wash their feet at this very important meal. And so then Jesus gets up and he begins to wash the feet of every person who is there. And the way that it worked is it was supposed to be the lowest person on the, on the totem pole, the lowest person in, in value and all that. The lowest person should have done that. But it wasn't. It was Jesus. It was his act of humility. And he wasn't thinking less of himself. He was thinking of himself less. Then he continues on. It says, just as each, excuse me, just as each of us has one member with many, one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now, Paul is using an analogy here that we find other places in the Bible where he's talking about the church is like a body. And so it's where we get the expression, which you've probably heard, the church is the body of Christ. So he's talking about the body of Christ, and then he says this. He says, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. And so to live God's will for my life, I will use my gifts. I will use my gifts. He lists seven gifts here. This is not an exhaustive list of the gifts that God gives. There's gifts listed in other passages of Scripture. But really the idea is that God has given you a gift or multiple gifts. And it may be something here, it may be something different, maybe the gift of, of music or singing or patience or whatever it is, but God has given you different gifts. And so what he's saying is everyone has a gift. Now, when it comes to gifts, one of the traps that I fall into is what I call gift envy. I look at other people and the gifts that they have, I'm like, man, I wish I had that gift, then I could do this. I wish I had this other gift. And I'll look at other people and I'll have a jealousy or an envy. But I have to remember that God gave me the gifts that I have. And that God gave you the gifts or the gift that he gave to you. And then he lists these seven gifts. And he really says virtually the same thing about all seven gifts. He says, if you have the gift of prophecy, and by the way, the gift of prophecy is not like I can tell the future, I'll tell you what lottery numbers to play tomorrow, I can tell you, you know, the Bengals are going to beat the Browns this afternoon, although that is true, but that's not, like, that's not the gift of prophecy, right? The gift of prophecy is the idea of being able to speak God's truth, even when it's unpopular to whoever it is that's hearing it. But he says, if you have the gift of prophecy, then use it. If you have the gift of serving, then serve. If you have the gift of teaching, then teach. If you have the gift of encouraging, 
then encourage. If you have the gift of giving, then do it. Then give generously. If you have the gift of leading, then lead and lead well. If you have the gift of mercy, then practice mercy and practice it with a smile on your face. You see, all of these are saying the same thing. Whatever gift you have, use it. That is part of living out God's will. And so the question I have for you is, are you using the gifts that God has given you to build up the body of Christ? Are you using the gifts that God has given you to grow God's kingdom? Not do you use it at work, do you use it at home, do you use it where, but do you use the gifts that God has given you to build up God's kingdom? The week before we started the book of Romans, we had a little bit of a vision Sunday, and I shared with you a graphic that I think we can put on the screen here. Um, It's connect, grow, serve. That we connect with God, we grow in community, we serve on purpose, and then we go with hope. And it's those bottom two on the graphic that you're seeing of serve on purpose and go with hope. That when we use our gifts, that's what we're doing. And the question is, are you using your gifts to serve in the body of Christ, to serve one another, and or are you using your gifts to go with hope to the world? Whether that be going across the street to your neighbor, going to the Second Avenue Center, going across the ocean, but are you using your gifts in that way? I want to finish, and by the way, if you're looking for a way to kind of connect and say, I'm, I want to, but I'm not using my gifts, Kim Nelson is our connections director, Kim Nelson at riverridge.org. Uh, you can find her email address on the website. Contact her, and she will help you to figure out what your gifts are and to serve in that way. I want to finish um, with a reference to a movie. So there's a movie called Remember the Titans. Um, And in this movie, Denzel Washington has been given the job of taking two high schools and two football teams and integrating them and merging them into one team. And it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, it's definitely one of the top five sports movies of all time. But he has this job of integrating these football teams, this football team. And so he, there's a scene, I think this is the scene that you're seeing on the screen there, where he's talking to the team, and he says, we're a team. And he says, we're going to change the way we run, we're going to change the way we eat, we're going to change the way we block, we're going to change the way we tackle, and we're going to change the way that we win. Romans chapter 12 says, therefore, in view of God's mercy... That's Denzel Washington or Paul saying, therefore, in view of God's mercy, we are going to change. We're going to change the way that we live. We're going to change the way that we look at the world. We're going to change the way that we look at ourselves with humility instead of with pride. And we're going to change the way that we use our gifts. Why? Because God has shown us tremendous mercy.